This podcast was recorded on November 14th, 2017. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or of its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Greetings, everybody, and welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm Jeff Sherman here today with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we are sitting in Chicago at the global headquarters of River North. And our uh, guest today is the Chief Investment Officer, Patrick Galley. Hey, Sherman. How are you doing, Patrick? Good. Good. So, um, you know, here we are in the offices of River North. Why don't you tell some people about River North and uh, how you got started here and... uh, the River North section of Chicago. Sounds good. So River North was founded actually in 2000 by my partner, Brian Schmucker. Uh, back in 2000, it was a traditional registered investment advisory firm. Uh, meanwhile, my background, I was at Bank of America and I was banking money managers and got to see closed end funds from an investment banking perspective. And essentially closed end funds, and we'll get into this probably in a little bit, but they're sold from Main, Wall Street to Main Street and saw them really inefficient investment vehicles. And so I was looking to start my own registered investment advisory firm in 2004. That's when I met Brian. Uh, at that point in time, we came together in 2004. We changed the focus of River North, actually formerly known as Pinnacle Fund Management. Uh, changed the firm name in 2006 to River North. But since 2004, we started opportunistically investing in closed-end funds trading in the secondary market. Wow. So a lot of people don't know about that. but. You know, maybe we should rewind the clock, too. How, how did you get that job at Bank of America? Oh, boy. Well, what, what was the career path? Were you always destined to be a closed-end fund analyst? Uh, actually, I didn't know what closed-end funds were until 1997 when I joined Bank of America. So before that, I was at, I graduated from Rochester Institute of Technology in Rochester, New York. Uh, undergrad degree in finance. Uh, looked at Wall Street uh, in Manhattan and said, you know what? Uh, not sure if I want to go want to go to Wall Street, but meanwhile I interviewed all over the country. And uh, Bank of America uh, had a corporate finance position available. There was training class available in Chicago, so I had a five-week uh, corporate credit training uh, program here in, in Chicago. Uh, after five weeks, uh, was lucky enough to be placed here in Chicago. I could have gone anywhere in the country, but you love uh, the weather. But the weather is. I'm originally from Buffalo, New York, yeah. so, so it's a little bit warmer. Very akin to Buffalo, so. Uh, chose, yeah, we're familiar with some people from Buffalo, New York, too. Uh, yeah, I know someone. Maybe uh, another Jeffrey. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, right. work with him. Yeah. yeah. Not too happy about those bills right now, though. Yeah, he was on a high point for a while there. But, uh, again, uh, we don't want him to hear this and get disappointed again. It's still a long slog to go, too. They look pretty bad uh, for the last couple of weeks. But, anyway. All right, yeah, yeah, let's change hey, the subject quickly. But speaking, they are, <laughs> well, speaking of how bad they are, my San Francisco 49ers screwed up and played the Giants and actually scraped away a win. And we're losing the number one draft pick now, I think, because uh, Cleveland's got that on lockdown. So uh, it's going to be tough because we have the head-to-head advantage now against New York. So. And I think the Bills have the Chargers next week. Yeah, that's correct, back in L.A. So um, anyway, so, um, so you, you, you went to um, Rochester Institute Tech. You started getting in, in, um, in this closed-in fund kind of business. Well, simplistically, explain to people what a closed-in fund is and why they should even care. Yeah, so closed-end funds, in the simplest term, it's a registered investment company. Uh, 
Uh, it's similar to a mutual fund. Unlike a mutual fund, though, when you put new assets into a mutual fund, the mutual fund grows. When you take your assets out, the manager has to generate cash and give you your cash back. Uh, a closed-end fund trades like a stock, on, typically on the New York Stock Exchange, and they issue a fixed number of shares. So they go through an IPO process, similar to a company, uh, and there's a, typically a 30-day roadshow. And closed-end funds, I like to say, they're sold, not bought. Uh, frankly, what do you mean by that? What, what, what does that phrase mean? Well, uh, they're sold through the major wirehouses. Uh, it, typically, there's uh, typically commissions associated with them as well. Um, and so closed-end funds are sold to the clients of registered investment advisors, typically at the wirehouses. Okay. And when a client uh, purchases one, uh, the commission is paid. And so let's just say a billion dollars of assets are raised in a closed-end fund. Uh, historically, the commissions have been around 5%. So $50 million would come out of the pot of money that's raised in, in a billion-dollar fund. And so now you have a security that's worth $950 million. But when it gets listed on the New York Stock Exchange, when it goes public, it gets priced as if it was a billion dollars. So what does that mean? It's trading at roughly a 5% premium to the net asset value, the net asset value being the $950 million. So thinking about a mutual fund where the mutual fund always trades at the intrinsic value or the net asset value. Correct. When you buy a mutual fund, you buy it at net asset value. When you redeem your shares, you get net asset value back. So once it starts trading, though, the investor that owns the closed-end fund has to find a willing buyer. And so not too many people in the secondary market wants to pay $1.05 for a dollar worth of assets. So after that, the supply and demand takes over in the marketplace, uh, and typically they trade at discounts to their net asset value. And that's where River North is coming in. In the secondary market, typically buying closed-end funds at discounts to their net asset value opportunistically. Yeah. So before we get into your complicated investment process <laughs> here, too, because I think there is some some curiosity there, and I think uh, investors really need to understand this part of the market, because there can be massive inefficiencies, which I want to get to. but why wouldn't a manager just keep raising these type of assets? I mean, you can just raise a billion dollars. I mean, what do you get, like six months, a year? I mean, you just keep piling up the assets like Uber and go and launch it out there? How, how does that, that work? So a manager has to go to the underwriters of these uh, wirehouses, and they have to get the underwriters on board for a certain strategy. Um, and so that's the, probably the most difficult part. If you're a manager and you want to launch a closed-end fund, you have to get the, the wirehouses, the underwriters on board. Um, and so typically, what do underwriters want? What do the wirehouses want? They want what's the asset class that's the hottest at that point in time. Uh, a good example would be, you know, up until December of 2016, the few years prior to that, the hottest asset class was uh, master limited partnerships, MLPs. And so master limited partnerships. The toll roads that aren't exposed to energy prices, right? Uh, correct. That was the story. That was the story. Yes. <laughs> with with a very attractive yields and favorable taxes, etc. So they were very hot and they could sell them. And a lot of them are trading at premiums to their net asset value. And so that made it attractive to issue new ones at or close to net asset value. And so they were, you know, obviously the more you could sell, the more they could sell, and, and so on and so on. Um, and so from there, you know, the managers of Master Limited Partnerships. Uh, they went to the underwriters and a lot of them launched new closed-end funds. But I would say that the gatekeeper at the end of the day, why doesn't every manager have a closed-end fund? Because it is a fixed pool of capital. It's typically because the gatekeeper is the, is the underwriter. And they don't want every single asset class out there. Okay. 
Um, yeah, well, I mean, um, it seems that there is some attractive opportunity. You're, you're trying to fill demand in the marketplace, right, when you bring these to market. Or not you, but the, uh, the managers do. Typically, when the deals come out, they're offered with a pretty attractive yield, right? Um, so how do uh, managers generate those types of yields? I mean, we see closed-in funds out today with 7 8 9% yields in the marketplace. How is that possible in this kind of low yield type of environment. Yeah, so I, I mentioned before, closed-end funds are sold and typically not bought. And I would say probably the number one characteristic as far as marketability of a closed-end fund is the yield. And so to your point, closed-end funds typically have higher yields than their uh, counterparts, the open-end mutual fund. And how do they get that? It's uh, mostly leverage. Typically, okay. the, the uh, 1940 Act uh, that registered investment companies are governed by allow leverage uh, in closed-end funds, so you can borrow money to buy more investments which have higher yield for the net assets of the of the, the common shareholder. Right, but they also have, I mean, that pool of capital is locked up, though, right? So um, can't you create some opportunity set through the illiquidity premium as well? Uh, you know, I think that's maybe back prior to 2008 in the financial crisis, a lot of closed-end funds had more illiquid es- esoteric assets. Um, most closed-end funds today, kind of the landscape today, it's about a $270 billion space. About a third are equity closed-end funds, and two-thirds are fixed income. And out of that fixed income asset class, about half are municipal bond closed-end funds, and the other half are taxable fixed income. Okay. So I would say most asset assets are level one and level two securities where you uh, can find readily available prices out there. Right. So versus- our listeners, you know, level one and level two is the amount of transparency you get to the securities and how well they're priced, how many sources you can find as independent sources for prices. Patrick is a little nerdy here, so we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll give him, we'll give him a little back. Yeah, we'll, we'll dial it back a little bit, though. But keep going. Keep going. So the illiquidity that uh, that you might be collecting from some assets there might be some of that in the closed-end fund space. Out of the $270 billion, though, most of the underlying assets are liquid and, I would say, uh, very similar to open-end mutual funds uh, already in the marketplace that are out there. A lot of the, the, the managers or the fund sponsors of closed-end funds are the same sponsors and managers that you see in the open-end fund world, and they might have a closed-end fund version that is levered, and then they might have an open-end fund version that's non-levered. But the strategy is very very similar, and obviously the closed-end fund version uh, trades at a higher yield. Right, and that, I think that's what gets the um, underwriting community kind of comfortable with strategies when they see an open-end version. You know, they, they may be more willing to do kind of that closed-end version, apply some leverage, uh, apply some things that are a little less liquid, not not out there like you're trading, um, you know, Picassos or anything, right? Right, right. 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 So, um, you know, w- we formed some partnerships over the years. Can you tell us how you ran across the Double Line team? Yeah. So, uh, Double Line team managed a closed-end fund at the predecessor firm, uh, and the, we were large investors. Well, we can say it, it was TCW. Yeah, T- TCW. It's tough to say, but I'll say it because yeah, we, say we get confused. Okay. It's not your predecessor firm; <laughs> it was our predecessor firm. In, in the closed-end fund was TSI. Uh, that was the ticker. Uh, the TCW Income Strategic Income Fund. I recall it. And uh, River North obviously focused on the closed-end fund space. We were quite familiar with uh, TSI. Uh, And I think TSI was a little unique that it had an institutional following. So out of the $270 billion in closed-end funds, you know, the 550 closed-end funds that are out there, by our research, about 95% of the shares are owned by retail investors. 
So only about 5% are owned by institutional investors. Okay. So you can, you can see that that creates a lot of inefficiencies by retail investors uh, selling for irrational reasons. But TSI was a unique example that they had an institutional following. Mm-hmm. And it was trading at roughly 1% discount to its net asset value. Uh, it actually, the, the discount narrowed from, I think, about a 15% discount all the way to 1%. And then the, T, uh, the double line team ended up leaving TCW. Uh, with that announcement, uh, TSI's discount immediately widened out to, to about 12 or 13% discount. Uh, River North, I think we were the largest or second largest shareholder, and so we weren't very happy. Uh, usually headline risk in closed-end funds is quite rare. I mean, managers come and go all day long, and nobody cares about the manager leaving in a closed-end fund. But in this instance, because of the institutional following and with the t- uh, double-line team leaving, uh, they weren't happy and they sold it. And so we weren't happy. We uh, looked to write a letter to the board. We actually did write a letter to the board um, uh, arguing that the contract should probably be managed by the same double line team. How'd that uh, work out for you? Uh, that uh, silence, crickets. Yeah, crickets. Uh, <laughs> but through that process, uh, you know, uh, sent an email to Jeffrey Gunlock. And he, uh, I think maybe the next day, got right back to us and we started the conversation about. TSI in particular. And then that kind of continued into uh, the following summer when Jeffrey was the keynote speaker uh, at a conference here in, in Chicago. And we, we talked about forming a partnership together where Double Line would manage part of the assets while we're managing a closed end fund opportunistic strategy. When discounts are narrow, more Double Line. When discounts are wide, more closed end funds. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I remember that conference and I remember uh, that meeting. So, uh, you know, and here, here we are, uh, you know, about seven years later. Right? At the Sherman Show. At the Sherman Who Show. Who knew there was so, going to be a Sherman Show? That's right. So, uh, you know, uh, we got to make us proud here, Patrick. So, speaking of, let's talk about your investment process. So, h- how do you think about it? You're talking about buying assets cheap relative to that net asset value. But as you just mentioned, the discount can swing widely. So, how, how does an investor, you know, kind of get their head around the space to try to generate incremental return? Yeah, I mean, I think probably the easiest way to approach that question is to talk about what we don't do versus what other investors typically Perfect. do. Um, you know, sometimes in risk management is what we don't do. Yeah. Right? And, and yeah. most investors looking at closed end funds will say, let's just buy all the widest discounts, right? Let's just say, um, you know, you have closed end funds trading at a 15% discount. If I can buy a dollar for 85 cents, that seems pretty attractive. Um, most likely, you'll become frustrated and you'll be owning that dollar at a 15% discount for many, many years to come, and maybe even the discount goes wider. Um, or you could be looking at it on a yield-based approach, and a lot of investors look at just the highest yielding closed-end funds, and then typically those closed-end funds have more leverage, there's more risk in the underlying assets, and they're going to be disappointed when volatility spikes and risk assets blow out. But that sounds like a perfect place to be in 2017, right? Or it has been at least until at least a week ago, right? And typically, we start pairing our exposure as kind of complacency takes place, discounts narrow. That's when we're pairing back our exposure. So how we approach the space is really threefold. Um, you know, the most frequent trading that we're doing is, you know, we'd call it mean reversion trading. So we're looking at the current discounts of closed-end funds relative to their historical self, and then relative to their peer group, and then relative to the whole closed-end fund space. Because you've got closed-end funds across all sorts of asset classes. You need to put them in a, in a relative context. And because most retail investors own this asset class, 
uh, behavioral finance comes into play, right? Mm -hmm. And so what do investors want today? And so then you can see the discounts more narrowing in those asset classes. That's when we're typically selling because now they're richer compared to their historical self. But same vice versa, obviously when certain asset classes uh, are out of favor, typically the discounts widen out. And so closing funds actually are a, a guide for oftentimes, are is where's their value in the underlying assets and where are assets over uh, uh, bought because of the discounts and premiums. Right, no, it's very interesting. I know, um, you know I've always been interested and in, I like what you guys do. But the um, question is, uh, so these are managed strategies, these aren't passive or systematic strategies. Um, how much research goes into the manager? Does the manager matter? Or is it really you're looking at the underlying assets themselves? Yeah, good question. So uh, the manager of closed-end funds, I mean, there's uh, numerous managers, uh, numerous fund sponsors. You've got the likes of DoubleLine managing a couple closed-end fund. Um, I would say the manager is not the top factor, let alone maybe the not in the top five factors. Sam doesn't like that answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, where the manager comes in, in play is actually from a behavioral finance standpoint in that the retail investors follow those managers that are known in the marketplace and they feel comfortable with a double line, for example. And so a double line might trade better than its peers. But if you put the same assets of one of the funds that you guys manage in a different manager, then you could be trading at a significant different discount or and premium. Prefer, and you choose that probably better because if you not, analyze the asset. Point, not necessarily no? because no. we look at discounts on a relative basis. Uh, so you care about and where not, it is. And so. not an absolute basis. Okay. Yep. So so now we put the close-in fund in a relative context. It's where is it currently trading relative to its historical self. So while we do look at the manager, it's not the most important factor. We're looking at discounts. And from our, our standpoint, we look at close-in funds is that we're buying – asset classes in a discounted wrapper, right? It's if I think if you're the listeners own certain investments, let's just say they own an open end mutual fund and they could buy that same strategy at a discount to its net asset value. They'd probably say, why wouldn't, why wouldn't I go do that? It's the same concept. And so we like to call ourselves opportunistic investors in closed end funds. And so we're not in closed end funds all the time because when discounts are narrow, sell the closed end fund and lock in that excess return from the discount narrowing. So what do you buy then? I mean, you're, you're talking about you're an opportunistic closed end fund trader. What do you do when the opportunities go away in certain parts of the market? So our flagship fund, the River North Core Opportunity Fund that we launched in 2006, it uses ETFs as the counterbalance to okay. the closed end funds. So cheap beta. Yeah to the closing funds. So don't time asset classes, but time the discounts and add excess return from the discount narrowing. In the terms of our partnership, we use DoubleLine. So DoubleLine manages uh, a core fixed income strategy. That's the the uh, variability uh, portfolio that we're drawing from to increase our closed-end fund exposure or we're increasing it um, when there's not enough opportunity in the closed-end fund So space. where you believe the manager can outperform, you do that over the ETF. Yeah, I mean, what we like to say is you got DoubleLine, uh, managing the portfolio, waiting for opportunities in the closed-end fund space, which is a very inefficient space. Well, I, I like the I, the idea you said that it's kind of a behavioral alpha because you're capturing sentiment and you know people that are being dissatisfied with management, dissatisfied with the sector, the market, or the sector is just going down. Um, and we're here in Chicago. Uh, you know, uh, Richard Thaler just won you know the Nobel Prize for Economics this year um, for all of his work on the behavioral side, and so. How do you kind of think about, how do you get comfortable with trying to capture behavioral alpha? 
You know, I mean, it's just such an abstract idea. I mean, yes, we know it. We know that things get dislocated. How, how do you really get comfortable with saying, I'm going to trade on people's insecurities or people's fears and things like that? I mean, frankly, closed end funds give us a lot of comfort in being able to buy more when volatility is increasing and everybody's running for the exit. And the reason being is because you have that net asset value as the anchor and versus where is the fund trading relative to that net asset value. So if a closed-end fund discount goes from 10% to 12% to 13% to 15% to 16%, we can feel comfortable to buy more as that discount's widening out. And I think closed-end funds is probably one of the only asset classes out there or, or vehicles that you can say you know what it's truly worth versus where it's trading. Right. You know, what, what's the va- intrinsic value of Apple? Ask 10 different investors and you get 10 different answers. And I always like to say, what's the value of gold? And people right. just rattle off the price of gold. And I'm like, but no, is that the value? So it trades at fair value? How do you value it? You know, and so again, the, you know, I, the, I guess the popular thing now is talk about cryptocurrencies. How do you value them? Right. Um, but uh, going back to what you said at the beginning, you said there's 550 funds roughly in the space, $270 billion. That means there's not a lot of size in some of these funds, right? How do you move your position around? What do you use to make sure that you don't end up with the entire block of the securities? How do you get how do you get filled in your orders? Because we've been there before when we're doing our trading and you know we're trading closed end funds and you know we find ourselves leaving a bigger footprint than we'd like oftentimes you know, when we're trading in the closed end fund space. So. Often wondered how you guys. How do you guys do it? Secret yeah. sauce. Yeah. How do you yeah. guys get through it? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, not to give them all the details. <laughs> it's like the formula for Coke. We know what it tastes yeah. like. We don't know what the ingredients are. But you know, um, again, how do you how do you navigate the liquidity, the bid offer, and the likes in this market where some of these things tend to be thinner traded? Yeah, I mean, if your mentality is different than a traditional stock picker, right? A traditional stock picker would say, "Oh, Apple's cheap. I got to go buy it." And then they're going to go to the market. and They're going to walk in the office. and They're going to buy whatever they can, tell their trader, buy whatever they can at certain prices. We think in terms of not price, but discount. And so we've created our own algorithms to track the discounts of closed-end funds intraday. So backing up, the net asset value of a closed-end fund is published every day at the end of the day, just like a regular open-end mutual fund. And then the market price, though, is traded throughout the day because it's traded on the New York Stock Exchange. So we're estimating the net asset value intraday, comparing that to the market price. That gives us a real-time discount. So when we put orders in, we we created our own trading execution management system. It's not a black box or a gray box, but it's rather just an efficient way to trade close-in funds off of discount and not price. It's all electronic? It's all electronic. So we put- You want those flash boys? Uh, yeah. in, we're flash boys in a very low frequency uh, okay. trading okay. environment. Um, FT. Yeah. So, so you've got close and fun discounts at, let's just say at 9.8%, we'll put an order in at 10%. And so when the close and fun discount gets to 10, we're, we're automatically executing. Okay. But how can that happen? Two ways. The underlying assets could appreciate and the market price could stay the same. The discount just widened. Could be a, could be a higher price, or the market price could go down and the net assets stay the same and the discounts wider. So we're just buying again asset classes cheaper as the discounts widen, and so we've got this electronic eye out there following all a lot of closed end funds, hundreds of closed end funds a day, and buying based off of discount, not not price. And I, I assume too that um, you know people familiar with you guys, if they have a big position, they want to do something with it, probably pick up a phone and give you a call too, right? Allocators to our strategies, 
yeah that have you know want to allocate significant dollars typically give us give us a call give us a heads up so we can uh, put that capital to work more efficiently in the closed end fund space when opportunities are there. So you mentioned that you said about two thirds fixed income, one thirds equity. Correct. Um, you know, are, are there any other type of assets you mentioned MLPs? Is there anything else out there in the closed end world that uh, investors should be looking at? Uh, I mean, there's some esoteric at the highest level equity and then fixed income right and then you can go and again a third are municipal bond closed then funds for the whole space so that's you know a lot of tax-free income um that's probably the most popular asset class with investors because they can get attractive yields tax-free especially if the salt stuff gets removed right right um, i know you're sympathetic here in illinois but <laughs> in california as well right yes yeah. yes yeah. only one way to go here yeah well you got to fund these deficits somehow um, so, you know, other asset classes that are currently popular, I mean, uh, you know, historically bank loan closed end funds were popular because of the floating rate ne- nature um, and investors being afraid of interest rates. So they have very low interest rate risk plus the leverage reset, you know, it's kind of correlated to the floating rate component too. So you can kind of keep that spread somewhat constant, right? Yep, yep, yep. Um, but then from there, I mean, it really every flavor of an asset class, if you could think of an asset class, it's probably in a closed end fund wrapper. Um, probably the most esoteric are single country emerging markets um, that you can get exposure to. So you can get exposure to China and Thailand and Korea, India. Um, I actually so- saw something this morning that traded a very wide discount. It was IRL. It was Ireland, the Ireland one. Yep. Yeah, and just uh, just randomly there was something popped up in my Google News feed that said something about this Irish closed in fund. I'm like, what have I been searching on? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you can get exposure to really any type of asset class. We t- probably the more narrow it is, the more likely River North is staying away from it, right? Because the, then the, the margin of error is greater because the underlying assets, I mean, do we, our, our uh, prospects of getting Ireland right from a market timing perspective is pretty low. Relative to timing discounts is a lot higher, right? We can time discounts a lot better than the asset class. So the narrower the asset class, the more, more likely we're gonna stay away from it. So we like highly diversified closed end funds, you know, that way we're not taking single company risk, we're not taking single sector risk. And in fact, you know, even our asset class risk is pretty diversified. Well, you end up owning a lot of things at the end of the day. Like, so how many positions would you say you typically carry um, on on the closed end side, you know, given um, just a a normal environment that means that you have just a kind of normal attractiveness? Normal would be 75 closed end funds. Okay. Give or, okay. give or take 25. Right. So each of these positions has many, you know, hundreds, thousands of positions, some, you know, probably 50 or 60. Yes, but. exactly. So then each closed-end fund from there is obviously owning many, many securities and very, very diversified. So we're, we're significantly diversified. So would you say, like, in some sense, too, the strategy does rely a little bit on the law of large numbers, right? You're essentially getting this kind of aggregate statistics together back. And that's really what you're trying to bet on with this algorithm, these mechanisms, right? Yeah. So it's an, yeah. So we've got obviously diversified asset classes. We've got very list, little risk there compared to a single asset class. Sure. And then the unique aspect, obviously, the we keep on referring to it as alpha. Yep. What's our definition of alpha is uh, simply the discount narrowing. So the, do we want the discount to go to par, or do we expect it to go to par, or net asset value? Unlikely. But if we own something at ten percent and it goes to 8%, that's 2.2% of excess return or our, our alpha, and that's the unique alpha that we're trying to extract from the closed-end fund space. And 
you can't get it anywhere else. And we did that on a very diversified asset mix without taking, you know, speculating on duration or interest rates or certain asset classes. Yeah. So you'd really sometimes I think I've heard you say this before. You'd rather you'd rather own something that goes from that trades at a five percent discount because you think it's going to two versus own something at ten. And you don't really have a lot of certainty that it's going to narrow, right? Right, right. And that gets back to the relative attractiveness of, of the discount. And then, you know, depending on where we own it, then it becomes, you know, position size management. If we do own something at 10 and it goes against us and it goes wider, it goes to 12% discount before it goes to eight, this is where the optionality or the opportunistic nature of the strategy comes into play, where we're able to pull from, exa- for example, either sell an ETF or pull from the double line portfolio and we can buy more of that closed end fund at a wider discount. And if you do that systematically, buy these cheaper assets wider and wider and then sell them as they narrow, it's just a recipe for alpha and it's pretty repeatable. What's good for us is volatility. So we need volatility in the marketplace. So how do you feel about 2017, the year of complacency? Uh, yeah, September 30th, I think we hit a low on the VIX. Yep. Um, I think it was all-time low. All-time right? low, past, you know. The Move Index, which is the Treasury equivalent, I think, is set new all-time records as well. It's, at least it's right on the precipice of it. So, I mean, 2017 for us is, you know, we need those complacent periods of time as well where we're able to trim our closed-end fund exposure as discounts are narrowing. So monetizing um, the alpha. And monetizing the alpha. Um, it just so happened that in 2017, you know, a couple areas that we haven't talked about are trading around corporate actions and shareholder activism that's going on in the space. And so instead of trading volatility, we're trading around corporate actions and shareholder activism. And so funds, for example, funds that are have wider discounts uh, that haven't been moving, maybe institutional investors are increasing their ownership and they're going to force the board to take action on that closed end fund discount. Um, that That typically unlocks value there that we're we're participating in. And so 2017 was a period of time where we're doing more bottom-up analysis from a corporate action standpoint and in, in, uh, shareholder activism versus trading volatility. But it also gives us an opportunity to to monetize those positions. Is there an opportunity brewing? Do you, you guys chomping on the bit for something? So uh, currently we're in the fourth quarter and, you know, believe it or not, typically you see tax loss selling and closing funds. And so discounts typically wide, widen in November uh, even in October and, and uh, the first couple weeks in December. And uh, just, you know, in the last two weeks, literally discounts have widened out about two percentage points. And so we're starting to see uh, some volatility increase and discounts widen out. And then January alone, discounts typically average uh, narrowing is 1.9%. And that's the January yeah. effect. Right, just people flip, getting back into some of those positions. Right. Uh, when you talk about this 2% widening, is it endemic in certain sectors of the market or is it just kind of broad-based. I don't think there's a lot of equity funds that have a lot of tax loss selling this year, I wouldn't think. Yeah, and tax loss selling usually is just, you know, investors like us back off from investing or buying in the fourth quarter. And so even if there's no losses, uh, usually you still have weakness in the closed-end fund space. So, But you're right, equity funds don't have a lot of tax losses. Um, probably the most uh, hit from tax loss selling this year is going to be business development companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of them have losses uh, from a mark-to-market standpoint. High-yield funds and bank loan funds, even though high yields up, spreads are narrow. The last couple of weeks have been rough. With the last couple of weeks have been rough, and then discounts are widening out. And so investors n- might not have a, a, a complete total return on their position in 2017. So the, the, that space is continuously getting weaker as well. Yeah. Uh, well, we started talking. Uh, started out talking about the closed-end fund space 
550 funds, approximately 260 billion. What's the trend on that? Has it been moving up, down, or sideways? Yeah, so the IPO market is soft currently. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll call it that. Um, some structural differences and new IPOs are t- what, what we call term trust or target term trust, where they actually have a finite life versus historically closing funds had a perpetual life. And so with, with the term trust, you actually get net asset value back in five or seven or 10 years later when that term expires. So that's kind of the trend. Recent closed-end fund uh, issues have been around nine. I think there has been nine in the last 12 months. So compared to 2007 was the record year. And I think there was about 42 closed-end funds issued uh, in 2007. Um, so we, we spent most of this time talking about closing funds, a little bit about Buffalo. Is there anything else you guys do here at River North that people should be aware about, uh, aware of, uh, except just closed-in funds? So a couple years ago, we launched a fund, or actually last year, we launched a fund focused on marketplace lending. Okay. Um, for well, why don't you educate our investors on that one, or our listeners on that one, I should say. So marketplace lending is an industry that's yeah, developed in the last 10 years, but uh, historically... Credit card companies have had a monopoly on consumer debt, uh, and online lenders have developed in the last couple of years or 10 years where they're really just a uh, online platform. They're not putting their own capital into the plat- platform. They're an originator, and then they're selling the loans to institutional buyers. Historically, it was called peer-to-peer lending, where you had an individual borrowing from another individual that was lending to them. And the one side of the peer equation became it's institutional. Like going to your friend to borrow some money. Exactly. And instead of knowing your friend, you're just going online and saying, I want to invest or I want to borrow. And now the investors have become very, very institutional. Mostly hedge funds have been buying the paper over the past uh, 10 years. Um, so we, a couple of years ago, we saw uh, this is a ripe space to uh, disremediate as hedge funds were charging very expensive fees for really just access to this asset class. I mean, they're not, to add alpha, they're not doing much on a security selection front. They're just really an access vehicle. So we launched the River North Marketplace Lending Corporation, which is a registered investment company um, uh, last September, September 2016, uh, to focus and buy from these online originators. And so um, you're, you're talking about there being a more institutional kind of buyer there, too. Um, explain what that means versus, you know, we were talking about the opportunities you get in the closing space by being dominated by retail. Now, tell me the benefits behind this institutional buyer coming to this marketplace lending side. Well, the institutional buyers have definitely been the catalyst for the growth in the space. So the platforms, the bigger platforms out there are the Prosper and Lending Club, and then SoFi, also you know, formerly known as Social Finance. Um, so having institutional investors come into this space has increased originations, and I would say has uh, really justified the spaces and the existence for, for the long term. Uh, current originations is around $30 billion annually. Uh, to put that in perspective, current credit card debt for prime and super prime borrowers is around $500 billion. Um, in most of this these, these loans being issued, average loan is about $14,000. I think the biggest misconception is that these are being issued to subprime and near prime borrowers. And frankly, it's the complete opposite. These are prime and, and super prime borrowers, you know, FICO scores in the 700 range. Um, 
And so it's term financing versus revolver. Like on yeah, exactly. These loans are, are typically three and five year terms and they're paying principal and interest on a monthly basis versus so down. versus credit cards just being a revolver and uh, credit cards typically no, doesn't matter if you're an 800 FICO score or a 650 FICO score, you're probably going to have a rate of around 25%, give or take 5%. So these online platforms are pricing the risk appropriately using various data to price that risk typically rates from 7% to 29%. We're getting close to the end here. I mean, it's been a great conversation. We're going to have to pick your brain a lot more on this going forward. But Sam, do you have anything that you may want to uh, ask Patrick about? I do. So there's this rumor going around, maybe from people who work here, maybe not. I'm not going to say anything. But uh, the River North Global Headquarters. We're not a double-line office. That's right. That's hey, right. Careful. Um, we can lock the doors on you. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the CIO, you're the CIO of River North. Prior to that, you were at Bank of America. But I've heard there's been another type of career in there outside of finance, perhaps, in more of an entertainment type of industry. I don't know if you could... Uh, Careful where this is going. <laughs> well, there, I mean, <laughs> perhaps uh, something called Fun Believable or... Oh yes, we're gonna have to find the mole. Now, is this is this on your LinkedIn profile? <laughs> so, in college, uh, I founded Fun Believable Entertainment, which was a clown company. Oh, uh, yeah. So, what was the dress code uh, like? Oh, uh, uh, big feet. All right, big feet. So, give you the whole background there. In high school, I knew how to juggle. I was a pretty good juggler. I am still a good juggler. Okay. Uh, and my sister asked me to dress up for my niece's birthday party. I obliged. And so, I had this video of me being a clown. Well, I got to college, and I got to see an opening for a clown. And it paid $35 an hour. Wow. That's pretty and solid. That's, wow. solid that's, that's the, the real deal. Yeah. Yeah. And because I knew how to juggle, and I've been a clown, I had this video. I showed them the video. They said, boom, you're hired. I mean, you could, you, could, you could fund an entire party at that rate, 35 bucks an hour, right? Yes, yeah. And so through that, the company was getting actually $65 an hour. And being the capitalist that I am, I wasn't too happy about that. Disintermediate again? And I was ready to disintermediate, exactly. And so I started Fun Believable Entertainment, and uh, from there, I it took off, and it funded my college. Yeah, what was the... Uh how many shows are you doing at peak fun-believable? Fun-believability? Oh, fun-believable. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe, let's put it this way. Eight hours on the weekend would be a very busy weekend. But eight hours times, you know, $60, $70, $80 an hour is pretty good business. Yeah. Very good business. Yeah. Versus working in a cafeteria. Yeah, for, um, you know, just whatever the uh, work-study program paid. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, with that, well, thank you. I think it's about time for uh, Mr. Lau's favorite part of the uh, show. And so, uh, Patrick, I'm going uh, to have Sam introduce you to uh, his favorite part called Sherman Says. And Sherman Says, if you're not familiar, is when I say a word or a term, phrase, and I expect a single answer. Single word answer. In reply, and I could tell you right now that we've had zero success in all of this. Yeah, it's my my. I usually ask I, a phrase. I spoke with someone yesterday who claims they did actually be successful. I'll tell you about it afterwards. Okay. But, uh, okay. I think we do have one winner. I'll have to if go back and uh, judge. I have to go back and look. But uh, 
It's a word association game, uh, a verbal Rorschach test, if you will. So what I'll do is I'll start off a, with a word for Mr. Sherman and then move to you, and then we'll alternate from there on. So, Mr. Sherman, All the first... All it does is tell you about the inner workings of your person. <laughs> <laughs> right After your revelation of... Uh, fun believable. It's fun believable. <laughs> so, Mr. Sherman, Bitcoin futures. Imminent. Mr. Galley, buy the dip or sell the rip? <laughs> buy the dip. How are you going to give him phrases? That's for one word. <laughs> never <Yeah>. successful. <laughs> right. yeah. I told he you this. Never successful. Okay. Debt to GDP. Reinhard Rothenoff. Interest rates. Going up. Fangs, as in the uh, disruptors, the stocks. Futures. REITs. Houses. Artificial intelligence. Jobs. This one's more of a question. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Buffalo Bills making the playoffs. Definitely. I find that questionable, but uh, Chicago. Cold. Los Angeles. Crowded. Cash. Buy you some. iPhone or Android? iPhone. iPhone? And that's it. All right. Thanks again, everybody, for joining us. We are here at Rib North's uh, global headquarters uh, today. We have Patrick Alley, the chief investment officer. Thanks for listening. As always, feel free to leave comments and uh, suggestions on our on our site. We welcome them. The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including and respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to the listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes any effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2017, DoubleLine Capital.